to Genesis chapter 29. I invite you to turn your attention with me this morning. Genesis 29, where we'll continue the series of sermons from this foundational book of Scripture. So you look back on your uh, lives, particularly those of you who are old enough to do this, you see different stages in your life. No doubt you can point to different seasons even in your life and uh, different sets of years uh, in which one pattern or another dominated those years in which the Lord had some particular dealings with your soul. Well, so it is with Jacob. Here he is entering this morning on a new season of his life, another season, a 20-year stint. This will turn out to be, in fact, at Paddan Aram with his mother's family and soon enough to be a more direct part of that family. It will be 20 years of drudgery, 20 years of friction, as we shall see, during which Jacob will find that Laban is both his match when it comes to deceiving, but also the means of his discipline as well. But first, to prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we go to your word now and hear it, we pray that um, indeed your spirit will work in us what is pleasing to you, will give us spiritual ears to hear. Even as uh, Elder Thomas has prayed for someone else, we pray for ourselves now that you will grant us to grasp the spiritual things and that you will apply your word to our hearts, to our lives, that we may learn its lessons well, that we may be molded and formed by it and so conform to your will. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 29, beginning at verse one, then Jacob went on his journey. Now the Hebrew here can be translated literally, Jacob lifted up his feet. Some here see something of a spring in his step. He's met with God at Bethel. He's, he's seen God. He's received God's promises. And of course, therefore, his step will be surer and his outlook brighter. Jacob went on his journey and he came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. That information now is going to be important for you to remember as the story unfolds. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. While I was working on this um, sermon, there was a knock at the door. It was a salesman trying to uh, peddle some new cleaner that was going to replace every cleaner in our entire house. And when I told him that I didn't think we were very interested, he immediately dropped to his knees, pulled out a toothbrush, sprayed it on the porch, and began cleaning a spot on my front porch. <laughs> when I said I really didn't think I was interested, 
he asked my name and the name of my dog, who was barking at him by this time. When I tried to close the door, he asked me what my living is. And when I said I simply need to go, he asked, where did I lose you? And I told him, you never really had me. Well, I, I get the feeling that that's what these shepherds were feeling about Jacob, something along the lines of the, of, the, of the salesman. Here he is, Mr. Budinsky, come rushing in, firing off a bunch of questions to shepherds who don't even know him, and you get the sense from his curt answers that they weren't really interested in Jacob or in anything Jacob had to say or what he might be selling. But if that made him unpopular with them, watch him step all over their routine and probably their tradition with the brashness of, well, of a door-to-door -door salesman. He's now let himself in the house. He said, verse 7, Behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. This by the way, we can imagine was quite a feat of strength to move a stone normally moved by a few uh, shepherds at least, which uh, leads us to believe that even though Jacob was something of a homebody back in Beersheba, it didn't mean he didn't have muscles. Then verse 11, Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to the house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Now you might be tempted to think that uh, Laban here is filled with love for this uh, member of his sister's family, Rebecca's son, but later it will become clear that uh, Laban's hopes may have run more along the lines of another financial windfall, like the one that accompanied, remember, Abraham's servant's visit to Laban to secure uh, Rebecca for uh, Isaac to begin with. Laban, we will find out, was a very self-centered man, not unwilling to use others toward his own advantage. In fact, his hospitality is starting to grow thin when he turns, in verse 15, to Jacob. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? A subtle Hint, no doubt, that Laban is ready for Jacob to start pulling his weight. But also an offer that probably stems from Laban's own observation of Jacob's apparent interest in his daughter, 
Rachel, which affection Laban was more than happy to exploit to his own advantage. If he couldn't get money out of Jacob, certainly he was going to get work. Now Laban, verse 16, had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Now, did you notice that Laban did not say that he would give Rachel to Jacob? It may be that Laban is already hatching a plot already now to substitute a daughter to give to Jacob, certainly not the daughter that Jacob has in mind. And when the day does come and the seven years are over, notice that Laban is in no hurry to take note of the fact that the seven years have passed to give his daughter over to Jacob. In fact, Jacob has to demand his rights in verse 21. But oh, that he had specified clearly to Laban that his rights were not merely for my wife, but for my wife, Rachel. Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. I hear the narrator is building suspense. He puts us on hold to tell us about, about this servant, this female servant Zilpah, while Jacob is making love in the dark, not to his desired Rachel, but to ugly Leah, whose name, by the way, likely meant cow in the ancient language, while Rebecca's meant you lamb. And it was obviously lacking in beauty, at least in the daylight, uh, in several ways by comparison to her lovely younger sister, Rachel. Now, through the waking eyes of Jacob, we get to see it, verse 25. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me seven, another seven years. Now the week to which Laban refers here is the week of rejoicing and feasting, which have followed a wedding in those days. The wedding reception, if you will, lasted not just one evening, but a, but a whole week long. 
And the terrible irony of this week, the biting irony, is that for Jacob, it's not a week of rejoicing, it's a week of recoiling at the thought that he had been tricked. The deceiver had been deceived into marrying Leah, Leah of the weak eyes. But what choice did Jacob have? Of course, he recognizes Laban has him over a barrel, and Laban knew it. At least he gets uh, uh, Rachel right away, um, but he does have to work for another seven years. Verse 28, Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism defines sanctification as the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, and enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Now that's a fine definition of sanctification and one with which we've been happy and continue to be happy these 350 years. The only problem is that sometimes we understand that definition to mean that our sanctification, our growth in holiness will be a generally smooth and always uphill grade. But as any well-experienced saint will tell you, that is not usually, if ever, the case. The process by which we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and, and to live unto righteousness, by which we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, is often a path, usually a path marked by trouble and by distress, by ups, and downs by sins and by trials as well as discipline and triumphs. If you've seen the graph of the uh, Dow Jones Industrial uh, over, the, over this past month, it is starting to look generally like sanctification does. Ups and downs, ups and downs, though generally at least recently on the up. Sometime back, James and I made a gun rack together. We uh, needed a place to hang the guns in his room. And for whatever reason, we just couldn't find a gun rack anywhere in the stores to buy. Perhaps it's no longer politically correct to hang your guns on the wall. I don't know. But anyway, we ended up making one ourselves out of a few pieces of pine. And while I could get the main shape cut out with my little hand jigsaw, uh, it was still had a long way to go after the cutting was done. The curves were still rough, the edges were filled with splinters, and so now the real work began. I ripped a piece of sandpaper down the middle, gave one to James, took one myself, and we each took a piece of wood in our hand and we sanded, and we sanded, and we sanded, and we sanded, and the wood even started getting hot. 
in our hands from all of the sanding. And the dust was piling up in the room and probably in our lungs. The process was hard and painful. Yes, for us, but even more for the wood. But in the end, a thing of beauty emerged. I think it's a thing of beauty. <laughs> well, so it was to be with Jacob, and so it is with us. Sanctification may submit itself to a nice, simple definition in our catechism, but in experience, it is hard. It is painful and it is rough. The late Dr. James Boyce referred to Jacob's experience here as taking classes in God's school of hard knocks. Knocking off the rough edges. It's the way of God's dealing with his saints. And because it is the case, I want to spend the time that is left to us to consider briefly but two points. First of all, remember, Christians, that in all things, in all things, we must see God directing the events and the circumstances of our lives. Every one of them. Now notice how Jacob, in Jacob's life, God is sovereignly directing, orchestrating, and moving all of these events. Jacob comes to a well in the east, and who should he find but shepherds? Yes, shepherds, but shepherds who know Laban. And then while he's talking with them, who but Rachel herself should come with her sheep to water them at just that moment, in just that place, the daughter of the very man that he's come to find. And the woman uh, for whom so quickly his passions will burn. It is, along with countless other examples, the scripture's almost passive witness to the fact that God is always working, always orchestrating, always directing every detail, every event in our lives. But not only those happier events, the, the less pleasant events are also directed by him. It's difficult, if not impossible, not to see that God also has Laban in his hands and is using him, about to use him like sandpaper on Jacob to remove Jacob's rough spots. Jacob comes into this picture cocksure of himself, even brashly instructing the shepherds about their own traditions and practices. He has, after all, he's seen the stairway to heaven. He knows God. He has heard God's voice. And he's ready now for action, and he knows best. We Christians can be a lot like that, can't we? We can be a lot like that. It's one of the hardest lessons for us to learn, for instance, as missionaries in foreign countries. We know best. We are Christians, after all, we have God's word, we know what it says, we're ready to apply it as only we know how. And then come the rough spots. 
We needn't leave, though, the borders of our own country to know that sometimes we don't know. We thought we were ready to take on the world, when in fact we weren't even mature enough in the faith for the task to take on our own souls. Now, granted, Jacob had met with God. He had seen him. He had heard him at Bethel, yes. He is God's man, but he still has a long way to go. Or we might say, if it is not too cliche, he has a long way to grow. And so do we, every one of us. It will not always be easy. In fact, most of the time, it won't be easy. But here's the great thing. Whatever we must go through, it is God who is directing it and God who is sovereign over it. Whoever we must encounter, whoever will encounter us, they're under God's control. He used Laban in Jacob's life. Who is he using in yours? Or who will he use in yours? Could it be that person will be your neighbor? Maybe your, your boss or your employee? Could it be a sibling or like Jacob, a, a relative, an uncle? Likely that person will know exactly how to press your buttons, as we say, to set you off. And sometimes it will be in exactly the way that you set other people off. Laban knew how to rub Jacob the wrong way because Laban was so much like him. He saw in Jacob the very same qualities he had in himself, the deceitfulness, the conniving heart, the willingness to use others toward his own ends. Jacob, of course, was being sanctified in this whole process. Laban, from what we know of him, was a rank unbeliever and outside of the ways of God. But God was going to use Laban to accomplish the work he had to do in Jacob of humbling Jacob, of breaking Jacob, of rebuking Jacob, of molding and shaping Jacob more and more into the image of God. You have such people in your own life. Sandpaper people. Interacting with them is not very pleasant most of the time. But know this, God is in control of them too. And the only reason they can get to you and get under your skin like they do is that God is using them to do just that. He's using them to form your character. He's using them to show you something of yourself. And oftentimes, in their sin, and you cringe at this and so do I, but oftentimes in their sin is seen so well your own sin. It is the demonstration that God is directing all things in your life, even the people in your life, toward this end, that you should be more holy, more godlike, more conformed to his image, 
to sanctify you in short. But not only must we see God directing all things in our lives for our sanctification, we must also, second, learn to recognize God's discipline in our lives for our sanctification. Now we could go to any number of places in the Bible to be reminded of the fact that God sanctifies us through discipline. It's the way of our loving Father with us. You only have I known of all the families of the earth, God says through the prophet Amos. And therefore I will punish you for your iniquities. It is the expression of God's love for us that he disciplines us for the Lord reproves whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights, says the Proverbs. And the Hebrews repeat the same uh, idea, the same biblical truth in the New Testament. If you are a child of God, you will receive discipline from him. That's the point with which you've become familiar, not only from the pulpit, but from your own experience too. What is particularly important to note today, though, is, is that that discipline that he applies to you will often take the form of the consequences of your own sin. God's discipline often takes the form of the consequences of your own sin. And you should not be surprised by this when it does. Here's Jacob in a foreign land, far from home, lonely, away from his family, particularly his mother. As a matter of fact, he will not see her again, ever in this life. Though this whole trip was supposed to be, but as Rebecca, as, as Rebecca said, just a, a few days, so to speak, it will be 20 years that he will spend that Jacob will spend with Laban before he will return. And when he does, it will not be for the cherished reunion for which he and his mother had hoped. And why? Why is all of this? Why all of this suffering and trouble? Because of Jacob's sin. Quite frankly, that's, that's it. Because of his sin, the entire period of affliction under Laban has been prompted by and is the consequence of Jacob's sin. And then in a sort of poetic twist, when Jacob goes to Laban and demands to know how you could pull such a fast one on me, Uncle Laban, switch your daughters in the darkness, Laban says to him, get, get this line. This is the scripture using humor. It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. <laughs> now Laban knows when he says, it's not so done in our country. He knows full well that it's not so done in Jacob's country either. And yet that's exactly what Jacob did. Stealing the birthright from the older, taking it for the younger. Laban may be well aware of what Jacob has done, but whether he knows it or not, only God could arrange these events just this way. What is God doing? God is disciplining his son. 
He's disciplining Jacob. And the rod God uses for this discipline is the fruit of his own sin. It is, as the godly Mr. Still of Scotland used to say, it is God using sin, sinlessly. It is God using Laban's sin poetically to discipline Jacob. And God continues to do so today. Why? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. And so that you will learn to hate your sin. So that you will learn to see the heinousness of your sin. So that you will kill that sin in your life and from your heart. For the foulness it is on your tongue when it is fed back to you. and For the sting that it is on your back when it is laid across as a rod. And of course, that he does not forgive you. Of course, he forgives his children absolutely, wonderfully. God puts our sins behind his back. God tramples our sins under his feet. God casts our sins into the deepest sea when we ask him to forgive them and remove them from us. But he also disciplines us. He also chastises us because he loves you too much. You are too much a prized child of his to leave you where he finds you. Oh, Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings, says the psalmist. That's what God is doing when in his providence, Leah appears in Jacob's bed dressed in Rachel's clothes. Just like Jacob appeared in his father's presence in Esau's clothes. And that is what God does with his children. Even his repentant children, when having stole from someone else, they find later that they've been stolen from, stolen from. Or when having frivolously spent their money, they're subjected to the shame of bankruptcy. Or when having committed fornication or adultery, they find that they've contracted a sexually transmitted disease. Or when for a minister's infidelity, he loses forever his pulpit. It's not as though God has quit loving his children. No, quite the opposite. It is precisely because he loves you that he sometimes lets you feel the sting of your own sin. It's the sandpaper of sanctification, you see. But remember the end. I remember where God is taking all of this in his sovereign providence. Remember, says the scripture, that the result of God's discipline is for those who will be trained by it, a harvest righteousness. Amen.